All right. If you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 5, the end of Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 11, and I'm going to read this text. It's quite, it's quite lengthy. We're going to go through the, all the way through the end of chapter 6. All right. I'm reading from the CSB, Hebrews chapter 5. We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you've become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of the hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it's impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain, that often falls on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and at the end will be burned. Even though we're speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy but be imitators of those who will inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that through two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, thank you so much that you are with us. Your promised Holy Spirit indwells us and helps us to understand your unchanging word, helps us to believe your unchanging promises, helps us to persevere uh, when things are challenging and difficult. Lord, so we need your Spirit's presence with us today. Lord, I, I pray that you would help me uh, to speak your word clearly, and uh, Lord, help us all to be listeners and help us to be changed then uh, for your glory and for our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, we're going we're gonna to walk through this text this morning, and it's, it's, a, it's a challenging one. Um, this is perhaps, I don't know if you've 
studied Hebrews at all before, this is perhaps one of the most difficult and even controversial uh, passages in the whole book. And we'll, we'll get to that. I'm not going to settle the controversy for us today, but I'll have some things to, to say that hopefully will be helpful. Um, this is controversial not between Christians and, and non-Christians, but it's among Christians. Dif Christians read this passage and come to different conclusions, and so we'll talk about that. I'm going to just attempt uh, to commend the message of this text uh, to you, and by God's grace, it will be of great benefit. Um, as I was preparing for this message this week, uh, I came across a, I guess you'd call it a meme. It was just an image that was shared on my social media feed, and I think it really captures the wisdom of today really well. It was a, it was a signboard that someone had made and then photographed, and it just said this. It was a, I think it's a quote from the classic Disney cartoon, Peter Pan, and it reads this. It says, uh, don't grow up, it's a trap. Don't grow up, it's a trap. You probably know what it means. Uh, because, you know, when you grow up, when you go from being a, a child to an adolescent and then an adult, you all of a sudden find yourself in having responsibilities uh, that you didn't have before. Life can get pretty tricky uh, when someone isn't there to clean up after you. Um, don't grow up. It's a trap. For, for some people, it, growing up might mean more freedom, more opportunity, uh, more, more, more joy, uh, more people in your life. Uh, but it also can mean more anxiety. It can mean more loneliness, more depression, uh, when we don't have any way to excuse away um, some of our shortcomings. But I wonder if that's, the really, if, if that's really the answer, just refusing to, to grow up. Is it, is it even possible? Well, biologically speaking, it's not. Living organisms grow. But as people, we're, we're more than just physical beings that grow taller, or in some cases wider. We also grow in unseen ways. Growing older means hopefully growing wiser. We mature not just physically, but in all aspects of our character, or at least we should. And so getting back to that Peter Pan uh, quote, um, there are people who rather intentionally, or sometimes not, um, sometimes even call themselves Christians, and they refuse to grow. They want to stay kids uh, forever. And the, uh, um, there's, a, there's a term for this in, I guess, popular psychology, and it's called Peter Pan syndrome. Uh, this, uh, you can look it up. Uh, you can, it's, it's usually used to describe men. I don't know if you've ever known any men like this or known any, you know, maybe had a relationship with anyone like this, but it's kind of the opposite of the, what is called the growth mindset. Growth mindset is, again, a term in, in popular psychology of, you know, you, there's things in life that you haven't experienced. You're just not, you're not good at them because you haven't experienced them. But it's the mindset of thinking, I'm not good at that yet. I'm going to pursue a strategy to become good at this or to conquer this thing. And I'm going to grow. And so Peter Pan syndrome is the opposite of that, of just saying, you know what, it's, I'm not good at that and I don't care. It's just too hard. I'm going to go just be in my comfortable space forever. Um, and if, you know, if the thing you're not good at is trivial, like, you know, how to make a, a viral TikTok video, then it probably doesn't matter. But if it's something important and essential to being human, something like how to resolve conflict well, to refuse to grow in that thing is actually a sign of great immaturity. And it will eventually catch up with you. It's, it's a really difficult place to be. 
And, and the, the Bible affirms this, and I think that's really the main message that this text, this long text in Hebrews that I just read is trying to get across. You were made not to stay stagnant, but to grow. You were made to grow. What does all this have to do with the text? Preacher of Hebrews has um, just declared, and Josh laid this out for us last week, that Jesus is our faithful and merciful high priest who's gone before us to secure our salvation, to secure your hope. And he's going to unpack the theology of that a lot more in chapter 7. But before he does, he gets off in this kind of like tangent. It's a digression. All of what we just read today is a, is a tangent. And he, he, he's going to do something that we don't like very much. He's going to kind of tell them off. He's gonna, this is a, it's a rebuke, a warning, a challenge, and an encouragement. But he starts off with a rebuke. If you look in verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, uh, you know, you should understand what I'm talking about, but you don't. Why? Because you're lazy. And that's a, that's a bit of a direct, you know, right, right, right on the nose there. He says, you guys have a bit of this uh, Peter Pan syndrome going on. You're, you should be more mature than you are. Verse 11, they're too lazy to understand. They weren't willing to learn and apply the more difficult truths of God's word to their everyday lives. They should have been able to go on to the next year level, but instead they had to repeat the basics of God's message. And the preacher's not okay with that. So it's not okay. So, so let me say to you, um, when it comes to knowing God, the more you actually learn of him, the more you want to learn. The more you know, the more you want to know. And for those of you who are married or have been in a significant relationship before, think back uh, to when you first noticed that other person. Uh, I remember noticing Katrina, my wife, uh, for the first time. About 50, it was almost exactly 15 years ago today uh, in an apartment in uh, Tianjin, China. Uh, I, I noticed straight away that she was Australian. I'd never really met anyone from Australia before, noticed the accent, um, noticed that she was really pretty, still is, and, uh, but I don't think I actually spoke to her that day, but I had a plan to get to know more things about her, because, w you know, when you're captivated by someone, the more you learn about them, the more you want to learn about them, and that's how our relationship with God is, is meant to work. The more we learn about him, the more we want to learn. And that's why we're commanded. We're commanded in Scripture. So this is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what you know about God, what you've experienced about God, isn't meant to stay here. It's meant to expand. It's meant to grow as you study the Scripture, as you experience Him, as you pray. It's meant to grow. So if we don't do that, if we refuse and we just kind of stick with what we know, then we're actually violating God's command. And it's pushing back against the culture of the world. And so I, I want to say, especially now to some of you who are, have been Christians for a while, and specifically I'll, I can talk to the men in the room, and some of you do this well, but I'm just going to say the culture that you're in actually really encourages you to not really 
expand in the knowledge of God, kind of to stay where you are, not to press into spiritual adulthood, if you like. But the scripture challenges us, calls you to something greater, something more. Everyone is called to mature. That doesn't mean all of you are called to go to Bible college or study the Bible professionally 24-7, but all of us is called to move on and grow into maturity. How, how do you get there? Well, according to this text, you need a proper diet to grow. You need what he calls solid food, not just milk. Well, what is the solid food versus milk? Well, it's still God's revelation. talks about the basic principles of God's revelation, and then I guess the more advanced principles, if you like. Um, it's beyond the basics. That's what, that's what solid food is. And the reason we tend to avoid solid food is because it's harder to digest. It's harder to understand. And, and lots, of, lots of us do this. Lots of churches do this. We, we see the Bible and we come to bits that are tricky and hard and we don't get them or some that are controversial and people have different opinions. And we kind of just kind of scoot over those and don't really study them because, you know, it's too hard. But Paul says this, he's, when he um, was planning a church in a place called Ephesus, he spoke to the elders of that church, those who he had handpicked to lead that church, and he says this. Listen to these words. This is from Acts chapter 20. He says, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Why? Because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan or the whole counsel of God. He taught them the entire Bible, the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation. He didn't skip over any of it. And he says, because he did that, he says, I'm innocent of the blood of all of you, which is a pretty dramatic way to, to put it. But he took it that seriously. This is a life and death matter. This is not about, um, you know, whether or not you, are, you, know, you win the Bible trivia contest and get a, a medal and a trophy. No, this, he, he sees this as a, a life and a death matter that you know all of Scripture because God has given you all of Scripture that he might be known, that you might know him and that you might want to know him even more. And this is not just a singular pursuit. It's not just you go off somewhere, uh, you know, in a mountain with a Bible and you get to, you know, you study by yourself. This is something we get to do together. That's why we gather every week. That's why we gather in discipleship groups through the week that we can open God's word together. We can commend it to each other. We can help each other believe. We can help each other grow. So you need a proper diet. That's the first thing you need. Second thing you need to grow is you need to pursue both right knowing and right doing. This isn't just about information for your head that you can pass an exam. Look at verse 13. If you see verse 13, knowledge of God, knowing God, it leads to you having a refined palate. Think about this. If, you, you know, if you're a, a, a master chef or just a master eater like me, you, the more things you eat, the more you begin to distinguish different flavors and different textures, and you know good quality. When you, you know, when you have good coffee, you know the difference between that and bad quality because you've, you've experienced it. And the more you drink, the more refined your palate becomes. This is the same thing is true with Scripture. When you study Scripture, when you begin to know God, the more you, you know and learn, the more you can distinguish between what is this. This is who God is. This is the gospel. This is right doctrine. This is right character. This is Christ-like. 
and these other things are not. Does that make sense? It's right knowing, but that leads to right doing, being able to discern, being able to apply, being able to teach others and commend what is good and right. So you were made by God to grow. Now jump down into chapter 6. This is good news. This is good news because God didn't make you grow and then leave you to do it all by yourself. Chapter 6, verse 1, here's the command. He says, leave the basics, the elementary things behind. Graduate from kindergarten. Put on your big boy pants and move on to maturity. That's, what he's, that's the command. What are the basics according to Hebrews? Well, God exists. That's, that's a basic truth. Um, good works and being a good person are not enough. Uh, for salvation, not enough to, to conquer death. Um, he talks about the initiation rites in the new, into the new community, things like the washings, which is probably a reference to baptism. He talks about the laying on of hands. He talks about the fact of the resurrection and the afterlife. He says these are the basics. But notice what's missing from this list. There's no mention of Jesus and the cross and the substitutionary atonement, the person and work of Jesus. Jesus, knowing him, is not just the basics. He is the center. He is the goal at every level of your growth journey. You never graduate beyond Jesus and the cross. I don't want you to misunderstand what he's saying. I don't want you to think that the basics are about how you get saved and then you graduate into like 10 steps to have a better retirement account or better marriage. That's, that's not what he's talking about. I'm not talking about that the basics are like the boring Bible bits and then the practical stuff is what we move on to. That's, that's not what he's saying. The whole book of Hebrews is about both understanding the basics of who God is and that he exists, that he, is, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We'll see that in chapter 11. But then to really work out what that means by looking and seeing and savoring Jesus Christ, who is the exact representation of who God is. And we will do this, it says in verse 3, if God allows God permits, we will do this. Of course we know he will do this. It's his command that we grow, that we graduate into maturity. And if we trust him, he will finish the work in you. He'll finish what he started. He'll carry it on to completion, as Paul says, Philippians 1, verse 6, on the day that you meet Jesus face to face. God planted you to grow. Now, I'm going to move on to the second kind of point of the morning First one being God planted you to grow. And the second one is very similar, but with an important difference. God planted you to grow. So the second point is, is more of a conditional. It's an if-then. If God planted you to grow, then you will grow. If God planted you to grow, then you will grow. The next section of this text from in verses 4 to 12 is the most difficult and controversial portion of the passage uh, that I read. So rather than diving straight into the weeds, I want to give you this as a summary. If God planted you to grow, then you will grow. I think that's what this passage is saying. We just saw that God has planted you to grow. That's a purpose statement, but this is a promise. If God did plant you, then you will grow. It may, it's inevitable. Now, it doesn't mean there won't be setbacks. It doesn't mean that you won't have failings and, and there'll be questions and doubts along the way. Of course, all those things will come, but you will grow because he planted the seed, and he does not make mistakes. That's what this passage is saying. If you're reading ahead, you might wonder how I'm getting this from verses 4 to 12. 
when you're reading the letters of the New Testament, and Hebrews is a letter, you always have to remember that the, the, the preacher had an original audience in mind. There's a reason why he wrote these things. There were actual people and churches that they're writing to. And it's not just some random truth that he kind of pulled out of a jar and strung together. There's an actual situation going on, and you've got to kind of read between the lines a little bit to try to piece back together what was that original situation that caused him to write this letter. Um, sometimes you'll find churches uh, that are facing false teaching, like some other teachers have come in from the outside and said, okay, you, you know, Paul's preached all about Jesus, but I'm going to tell you Paul's wrong, and I'm going to give you a different message. And so Paul has to come, come in and kind of correct and say, no, those guys are, are wrong, and this is why. Here in Hebrews, and, and we've talked about this before, we think that the situation is that he's writing to people who are under state-sanctioned kind of persecution. They were under pressure. They were suffering. And, and not just from persecution, but they were suffering from just run-of-the-mill unemployment and economic downturn, from sickness, from conflict in relationships, from disappointment. And that's really what this text addresses. It's the discouragement, and, and see if you can relate to this, it's the discouragement of seeing people that had been in the family, people that you had, you know, been in the church, had sung songs to Jesus, you'd done ministry with, and to see those people walk away. See those people say, you know, Jesus isn't for me anymore. The church isn't for me anymore. And they walk away. That's, that's the situation that he's writing to. And this, the, the, the person writing Hebrews, he's, he's, a, he's a pastor. And his heart is just going out to these guys saying, I want to encourage you here. I want to try to explain to you why this is happening and why that should not be an overwhelming discouragement for you. Why is it so that people walk away from Jesus? For all sorts of reasons. I don't, I don't know. You can think of some. Maybe you've spent some time with, um, you know, wrestling with doubts yourself. Or you know people that have. Some people walk away for intellectual reasons. They just have a lot of questions and doubts and they don't get, get answers. Uh, some people walk away for emotional reasons. Um, it just doesn't feel good to be a Christian. And if it's not working for me, how can it be real? Sometimes it's volitional. You know, I, I just want to pursue my dream of being a better me, and that doesn't really line up with, with the, the, the Christ's uh, call to deny myself and take up my cross and follow, and so I'm going to go do what I want to do. There's lots of reasons why people walk away. Um, the scriptures really boil it down to two problems, two problems that cause us to walk away. Number one is we can have a desire problem, a desire problem. Look at verse 4. It says, the people who walk away, they've tasted the benefits of being in the family, they've, the benefits of the kingdom of heaven. They've tasted of the Holy Spirit uh, and his gifts. They've tasted the promises of Scripture. They know the gospel, and they've thought, you know, they've, they know about the promise of eternal life, and um, they've kind of, you know, come to a place of thinking, you know what? I've, I've found a promise and a taste that's, that's better. And I'm going to go for that. I prefer what the world has to offer. 
Remember the parable of the four soils in Mark 4? We, we preached on that a few months ago. Um, there was the soil that produced thorns, the thorny soil. Um, what does Jesus say about this person, this kind of person? These are people that start out strong. They're in the family. They're alongside of us. They, they're brothers, sisters. And then the thorns come up, which is the cares, the concerns of the world, desire for other things desire for other things, and people begin to produce or pursue those other things. That's the desire problem. Now, C.S. Lewis, you've, I think I've even shared this before with us recently. Uh, this is in Mere Christianity, a famous line. He talks about, you know what, the reason that people and we can go after these other things is because we don't understand the, the glory of the promise that we've been given. It's like watching a group of little kids that are sitting, that are content and happy making, you know, mud pies in their, in, outside their house when they have no idea that they've been promised a fabulous holiday at the sea. It's not that we desire too little. Sorry, not that we desire too much. It's that we desire too little. We desire the wrong things. So that's the first problem, the desire problem. second problem and this was going to be hard to grapple with. This is why this passage is so controversial. Is what I call the DNA problem. So we've had the desire problem, this is the DNA problem. You can see this in verses 7 and 8. He talks about two types of crops again. Two types of crops that spring up out of the ground. The first type is, he calls, vegetation. That is useful to those who are cultivating it. Vegetation. It can be eaten, it can be sold, it can be utilized in some ways. And then in verse 8, we have the other type, and that is thorns and thistles. Now, this is basic biology. If you've, I don't know if any of you have ever grown a, a, a veggie patch or you've been a, a farmer. Um, y there's, there's just, you know, one of those basic things that if you buy a packet of seeds at the store, and you're gonna, there's a picture usually or a drawing of some kind on the front. When you put those seeds in the soil and you water them, what is going to grow? It's going to be the, the thing that's on the packet, right? It would be pretty surprising if you planted, um, you know, some, some beans in your yard, and then all of a sudden, you know, after a few months, up comes, you know, cucumbers. W w the kind of seed that you plant is going to correspond to what actually ends up growing. Why? Because the DNA of that plant is in the seed. The DNA of that plant is in the seed. It's going to correspond. So what does this have to do with people walking away from faith in Jesus? So all through the New Testament, we get kind of smacked in the face with this truth that God is a gardener, and he knows what he's doing with us. We are the seeds. We're the plants. Verses like uh, Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. Listen to these words. For he, that's God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. And then in Romans 8:29 he says, "For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters." So what's that saying? In other words, every person who is adopted as a son 
or adopted as a daughter into God's family by the blood of Jesus, every person was handpicked before they were born, before they did anything to earn that right. And those who the Father gives to the Son as his adopted brothers, his adopted sisters, if you're a Christian, that's you, you're one of those brothers, one of those sisters, all of you will be changed. All of you will be conformed into the image of your older brother, Jesus. Why? Because it's in your DNA. It's in your DNA. God put it there. This is why I don't believe that this text or anywhere else in the Bible teaches that you can, quote, lose your salvation. I don't have and you don't have shape-shifting powers to change your own DNA. You can't do it. I don't, I can't do it. Only God has that kind of power. So what do we, what do we say then about people who fall away? Because we experience this all the time. We see it. We know people. They have names and faces. We love them. We pray for them. Brothers and sisters, it is possible, and it's the hard thing to think about, it is possible to confess the name of Jesus Christ and be lost. It is possible to sing songs. It's possible to come to church. It's possible to memorize the Bible. It's possible to attend a Christian school and be lost. Because the only thing that saves a person, that brings a person from death to life, is the power of God and the working of his Holy Spirit. That's the only thing made available by the sacrifice of our high priest, Jesus, on the cross. It's the only way to have life is to have faith in Jesus and nothing else. You can have a church. You can have a Christian spouse, Christian parents, Christian friends, Christian book deals. You can be paid money to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And unless you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you do not have life. Which means for you and me, what should concern you far more than people walking around you who may or may not have walked away is what is going on in your own heart. So let me bring it back to now. If you are now in a place where you're not growing, you're not reading and learning and putting your learning into practice, then let that be the check engine light in your own soul. Too many Christians today, I think, have this idea that being a Christian is, is what you did when you were a kid at camp and you, you, you prayed some prayer or you wrote something down in your Bible and, 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 and the, the, you know, it's all going to be fine in the end. So it doesn't matter really what I do now. But the Bible does not let us get away with that kind of thinking. Bible, the whole of Hebrews, is so that you might persevere. And perseverance is not just something I don't think anything about until the moment I'm going to meet Jesus. It's a daily life thing that we are with him daily. He is with us daily. And if you have no daily desire to grow and to be fruitful and to be rid of ongoing sin in your life, if you have no desire to grow in obedience and, and, and humility and, and belong to and participate in a local church, then may I commend this scripture to you that you have an opportunity to change, to repent, to walk in daily uh, communion with the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 8 again. What happens to the thorns and thistles? Now, this is a warning for us. 
It's not just a warning for people who don't go to church or people who are out there. This is for us. Refusing to grow, refusing to walk in daily repentance with Jesus is a capital offense. Peter Pan syndrome isn't just a meme. It's not just something we can giggle about. It's a death sentence. Real Christians grow. Real Christians grow. And I say that to you not as to, not to, to whack anybody over the head with that, but to just commend to you that everything that you need for life and godliness, you already have. Everything you need. Non-Christians can't, don't have that. Non-Christians cannot grow. They don't have the desire. They don't have the DNA. But you do. You do. If God planted you, you will grow. You will produce fruit. You will produce useful vegetation. Your life will not be wasted. That's why the preacher in verse 90 pivots. He says, you know what, guys? I, I, I know better things for you. I have confidence. I have assurance for you. Verse 10. He says, your lives have evidence of the love of Christ because of the way you love people, because of the way you are generous to the saints and you're generous to others who, are, who have less and who have need. I see the DNA of Christ shining in and he says, I want you to have that same assurance for yourselves. I want you to chase it. I want you to know the hope with assurance, with confidence. Because you're in a marathon, folks. You're in a marathon. How are you going to make it to the end? How are you going to make it? It's to know the one who is running with you. Growing in Christ, it's not a sprint. It's not something we do in little in spurts. It's something, it's a, it's a daily, lifelong marathon. And we need to know how, how we're going to make it. So quick review, again, God planted you to grow. And if God planted you, you will grow. It's in your DNA. The fruit of growth is there as evidence to give you assurance. In spite of setbacks and failures, there is a slow and steady trajectory movement towards Jesus towards Christ's likeness, toward the goal. But the preacher, he's going to lay down one more important principle of growth, and we'll close with this one today. And here it is. To grow up, you need to grow down. To grow up, you need to grow down. And I, I recognize that sounds a bit like a fortune cookie, so let me explain what I mean by that. All right? When you and I go through life with Christ, we're going to face adversity, setbacks of all kinds. And I, I'm going to argue, and I think the preacher's arguing here, that the longer you cling to faith, the more you persevere, the more setbacks and affliction you are going to face. Now, that's not a very good sell for the Christian life. That would not get to the bestseller list um, down at the bookstore. But I think it's true, and I think it's good news. He gives an illustration here from the Old Testament. We find this in verses 13 to 18. He goes, 2,000 years back in time before Jesus, and he gets to a guy called Abraham. And Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to him, and he gives him a promise. He gives him a promise. He says, Abraham, I know you're old. You're really old. But you know what I'm going to do? I am going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to lead them into a land. And it says, uh, Abraham waited patiently. Verse 15, that little phrase, after Abraham waited patiently, he obtained the promise. But if you know the story in Genesis, 
You know that the time between the promise in chapter 12 and the fulfillment several chapters later, you know how many years that was? 25 years he waited. 25 years. Isaac, his son, when he was born, Abraham was 100 years old. I don't know about you, but I think the phrase, after waiting patiently, kind of undersells that a little bit. Waiting patiently is what you do when you're in the queue or on the phone for, for Centrelink. Um, it's not waiting 25 years to have a kid when you're already 75. That, that's next level patience. Must have been agony for him to keep believing. No one else in his life, not even his own wife, held on to faith. The longer he waited, the longer we wait, the harder it is to keep believing the promise. God, you must have got something wrong. And we see that. Abraham, he wavered at, at, at times. You know, he went out and he tried to have a kid with his uh, servant. And, and he, he did all, he, he wavered. He, he was not a superhuman here. It was tough for him to wait for 25 years. And the same is true for us. The more we grow, the longer we wait, the more challenges we face, the more we press into our own weakness, our own disappointment. Other people around us will fail us. Look down in verse 18. Who are we? Who are we? We're the people, in verse 18, who have what? Fled to God for refuge. We're refugees. That's not just a description of persecuted Christians in North Korea. That's us. That's you and me. Life is hard, and the taller we grow... The longer we wait for Jesus' return, the more wind and opposition we're going to face. We have out in our front yard, out the front of our house, a lone rose bush that is tall as the gutters on our house. And let me tell you about rose bushes. They are not, well, at least mine. I mean, you may have award-winning ones at your house, but ours are not very robust. Like the, the, the trunk, if you can call it that, of a rose bush is not exactly, you know, this stately tree. It's very thin. And it kind of looks like a moderate breeze would just knock it to the ground. Now, how do we prevent that from happening? We could, I could, build like a brick wall around it, and the wind will not touch it. But the problem with building a brick wall around a rose bush is that you can't, then you can't see it. And what's the point of having a beautiful flowering rose bush if you can't see it? God could, in a similar fashion, wrap you in bubble wrap, build a wall around you, and so that nothing touches you. You would experience no hardship, no affliction. Every need is immediately met. You never have to wait for anything. But then you wouldn't be very useful. Our rose bush out the front of our house has two things that keep it from falling over. Number one, um, there is staked to a metal support structure that keeps it mostly straight. It's kind of leaning from the wind, but it keeps it mostly straight up and down. So that's one thing, a, a support. But the second thing it has, like all plants, like all trees, is it has a root system. It has a root system in the ground that stretches as far down and as far wide as it stretches up into the sky. The growth up top is entirely dependent on the growth down below. And the same thing is true of you. Abraham and you and I are able to persevere. We're able to grow up in maturity 
when we grow down in dependence on Jesus, the anchor. God has given us, has given you a root system, a support structure that keeps you from getting knocked flat by the affliction that you experience, by the discouragement that you experience. And he wants you to know that he has chosen you before you were born. He saved you on the basis of his son's sacrifice. He adopted you into his family as a son or a daughter. He is growing you now and changing you now by the power of his Holy Spirit to be exactly like Jesus. He wants you to remember that he will bring you safely home to his arms. He wants you to know so much that he swears by himself, and there's nothing greater he could swear by. He swears by himself that this promise is true. He's saying, if I am in fact the greatest being in the universe, if I'm in fact the ground of all being itself, then all these promises will happen. All these things will come to pass. Not one promise he has made to you and to me and to us will ever fail. Not one. It is impossible, verse 18, for God to lie. It is impossible for his promises to not come to pass. God's character, his holiness, everything that he is, depends on him being true, and these things coming to pass. Nothing compares. And that, you see, his character, the unchanging nature of his character, see, that's the root system. That will keep you from blowing over. Verse 19, here it is. We have this hope, this hope in God and in his faithfulness to himself. This is the hope that is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, holding us in the soil. This week, there was a cyclone. I don't know if you saw it, but it, it hit uh, parts of America. 240-kilometer-an-hour winds. And I saw an interview with a guy who rode the storm out on his boat. And I'm thinking, dude, you are made of different stuff than me because there is no way I would ride out that kind of wind on a boat. But you know what? This guy, it was his boat, and he knew what that boat could withstand. He knew that it was anchored to either the seafloor or to the dock, he knew that he could survive. He had hope and faith in his boat, and, and I think that hope was well-founded. But you know what? We have, we have a lot more faith, or we can have a lot more faith, in an anchor not made from metal and things that we can craft ourselves, but made from the very Son of God, the unchanging character of God himself. That will hold you, not just in 240 kilometer an hour winds, but anything that comes your way. That's our hope. It's greater than anything else that you could live by, anything you could swear by. The good news here isn't that when stuff gets hard, man, you've got a strong grip. You've got strong faith. You're not going to let go. No, no, no. The good news here is that he is the one gripping you. He is the one holding you there. His unchanging character. You change, I change, I waver, I mess up. He doesn't. And he's holding you steady. You want to grow up in maturity? Then grow those roots down deep in Christ, and he will do it. He will do it. There's a lot in this text, and it speaks to kind of this larger question in Hebrews. How do I hold on? How do I persevere in the midst of hardship? Remember that, number one, God planted you where you are so that you will grow. 
in the, the, the hardships that come your way so that you will grow in him, so that you will persevere. And number two, if God planted you, you will grow because it's in your DNA. And number three, if you want to grow up in Christ, then you've got to let him grow those roots down deep so that you trust in his unchanging character, in his justice, in his mercy, in his promises, no matter what. He is holding you together with all the saints, and he will, with Christ, bring you home to the table on the last day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have, that we don't have to have faith in our own faith. We know that these things are true because you're true, and you never change. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Thank you that you are with us, that you don't leave us alone in the midst of difficult things. God, I, I pray that our hearts would be filled and encouraged by this word today. Lord, teach us by your unchanging word. Lord, as we come to the table now, again, may this meal that we share together every week be one of the means that makes us more like Jesus, the one whose body and blood these elements represent. Oh, God, we ask you to do what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.